0: Good evening. Welcome, guys. I know there's still folks coming in, but we'll go ahead and get started. Because uh, I'm just really excited to talk about this. We, I just like talking about the Bible. And we're going to talk about one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture in the whole Bible tonight. I mean, we'll talk about some interesting, controversial stuff and all but It's just one of the most beautiful passages in the Scripture. Hey, you guys probably remember by now that you can text your questions in during class. I think that number's on the bottom of your handout, too, as we move on from here. We are going to be talking about a straight talk for modern Christians. It's really a study of the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is written to an entire province, really, and it addressed uh, some theology. I mean, there's a lot of theology, a lot of practical stuff in there, on some issues of the day, but I'm convinced that the issues that the Apostle Paul addressed in this letter almost 2,000 years ago, are probably even more contentious today than they were then. And so what I'd really like you to get out of this series is, as always, an absolute love of the Bible and a desire to just read it more and, and be immersed in it, but also an appreciation for how, you know what, this is absolutely relevant to what's going on today. The issues they had are exactly the same kinds of things that we have. So if you have your Bibles, and you can bring your Bibles to this class and make notes if you want to. I'm going to put some key scriptures up here, so don't feel bad if you didn't, but feel free to bring your Bible and make notes in it. Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to do verses 3 through 14. And if you've been watching the social media, you'll know that I mentioned in that, that verses 3 through 14... In your English translation, it's several sentences, but in Greek, it's one long sentence. Second longest sentence in the New Testament. I'll just let you guess which apostle, named Paul, also has the first longest sentence in the New Testament. And this is 202 words, I think. It's the second longest sentence, and it's just one run on after another. It's almost like he's just so excited, he just keeps talking and talking and talking. So... I suspect he got an F from his English teacher on this, but it's endured the test of time. So we're going to talk about one sentence, verses 3 through 14, and it starts out, it's a particular kind of literature. Verse 3 begins with this hymn of praise. It says, actually, better translation, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. There's a play on that word. He just keeps, there's a rhythmic use of that word, bless or blessing. It's called a eulogy because that's what the word blessing is in Greek. And so we actually still use that word eulogy. We use it pretty specifically for saying some kind words at a funeral but the word actually just means I'm going to say some words that are blessing, you know, you know a blessing, some kind words, some good, good things to say. In Hebrew, this is called a berakah, and that's because the word for blessing in Hebrew is baruch. And so Jewish, Orthodox Jewish daily prayers, by the way, when you get up and you begin your day, you're going to, they're going to say this over and over, baruch Ata adonai, which means blessed be the Lord, or blessed are you, O Lord, and then go on and on, and just constantly. And so this is a format that he would have grown up with. In other words, he's used to praying, blessed are you, O God. And so now, what does he do? He starts the same way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So that's what he's doing. John Calvin, we're going to talk about him a little bit this evening, the famous uh, reformer in the Protestant Reformation said, The lofty terms in which Paul talks about the grace of God to the Ephesians are intended to arouse their hearts to gratitude and to set them all on fire and to fill them to overflowing. And I hope that's what happens to us as we read this blessing and we open it up. I want you to notice that... The focus, and as you read scripture, I'd like you to learn to think about it this way. As you read through it, you ask yourself this question, who is this entire sentence talking about? And you'll notice that God is at the center, and you'll see the word he and him and God and Christ. You'll see those words a lot because this is, everything's pointing to God and what God is doing in this whole, uh, this whole piece. So, let's talk about then, the rest of the sentence is broken into, I'm going to break it into three parts. He's going to answer the question, why should God be praised? Why would we say, blessed be the Lord? What has he done? And he's going to answer that in this really pretty little uh, format. He's going to talk about what God has done, what Christ has done, and what the Holy Spirit has done. So he's going to talk about the Trinity. He's going to say, blessed be our God and Father. Why? Well, let me tell you what God did, what Christ did, what the Holy Spirit did. And you can tell in your Bibles where each one of these sections ends. Watch when we go through here because I'm going to show you each section. It ends with a a quaint little phrase that basically says, for the praise of his glory. And so each section ends that way, and you can see it's kind of a blessing. We're going to praise God, his glorious name. And he ends with that little formula at the end of each of the three. Now, that causes a lot of heartburn to some uh, Christians. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Trinity. They don't think that God is eternally existent in three persons. Of course, Muslims think that's heresy because the Quran says that Allah has no son, And Allah cannot be divided, and that's heresy uh, to Muslims. But to Christians, we find that there's no, I don't think there's any place that just comes out and says, hey, let me explain this to you. There's a trinity called the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and they're eternally existent in three persons. You know, you're going to see some creedal statement, but you're going to see the trinity all over the Bible, and you're going to see it here just jump right out at you, okay, this idea of the trinity. The, uh, each piece closes with the idea of the, for the praise of the glory of God. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism, ex-Presbyterians, recovering Presbyterians in here, okay? Westminster Shorter Catechism opens with the chief end of man, or the question is, what is the chief end of man? And that is to glorify God, right, and enjoy him forever. And so it picks up this idea of God is to be praised for his glorious nature. So watch as we go through and you'll see it. Well, let's start with the first little section. It's verses 4 through 6. And so he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every uh, blessing in, this, in the heavenly realms. Why? Because he, God, chose us in Christ, it's referring back to the last word of the the sentence before, for God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves." So that's the section on what why God should be praised, what has God done. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to be adopted into his family, adopted as sons and daughters into his family. So let's take a stop here and let's talk about this issue since it comes up because Paul raises this idea of election or being chosen or being Predestined. Those are all similar ways of talking about what God has done. Well, Christians have kind of wrestled with this idea of exactly what does that mean for God to choose us? What does it mean for us to be elect? What does it mean to be predestined? So I'd like to talk about the uh, two major ideas and just hopefully we can break, shine a little bit of light on the controversy that's been going on for about 500 years between basically the Calvinist or Reformed point of view and then what I'm going to call the Wesleyan point of view. I'm going to really simplify this, but where we think of it more as maybe a Wesleyan point of view and look at those two views. Now, remember where this started. started with uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and others protesting against some doctrines of the Catholic Church. And so this whole idea about this argument about election is really a Protestant thing. In other words, they knew that they both did not agree with this salvation by works idea and that all the Protestants said, no, we're saved by grace through faith. But then amongst themselves said, but exactly in what manner? What's our role in this and what's God's role in this? So let me introduce you first to uh, John Calvin you can see there John Calvin was not the earliest reformer Martin Luther's older than he is but he comes into this and kind of plays an important part he's an interesting character and a, a very very bright man very very devoted individual he's uh, I'm going to read you what he says about his conversion story He says, when I was a very small boy, my father destined me for the study of theology. But afterwards, when he considered that the law commonly raised those who followed it to wealth, in other words, you can make more money as a lawyer than as a preacher, that's still true 500 years later, he said he uh, induced him to change his mind. And therefore, it came to pass that I was withdrawn from the study of philosophy and theology and set to the study of the law. I endeavored faithfully to imply myself in law school in obedience to the will of my father. But God, and here you just sense this very God-centric idea that you're going to see in Ephesians and you see in all of John Calvin's work. He says, but God, by the secret guidance of his providence, meaning for reasons I do not know but that were good to him, at length gave a different direction to my course. He says, at first, I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of the Pope, meaning I was a good little Catholic boy and didn't want to give it up, to be easily extricated. But God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame. In other words, God opened my mind and filled it with this different idea, this conversion uh, away from Catholicism. He said, "I was pretty hardened in such matters, and yet I was inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress then in that that I never he never looked back." And so John Calvin uh, becomes has this conversion experience. He joins this Reformation movement. He does uh, I'll just give you a short version of his life. He's a prolific writer and a prolific preacher. I mean, preachers today who preach we think. Uh, and it's true, it's difficult. You know, what Marty does every week is he preaches four different times running around the building. John Calvin would preach four times in a day. You know, it's just it was just amazing how prolific he was and just how bright he was. And so he was a major uh, force in the Reformation. He uh, died relatively early, though. He died about 54. And the interesting thing is he was so beloved. When he died, so many people came to view his body, you know, kind of at the funeral home, that they were afraid that it was kinda, of, seemed like going back to the Catholic idea of saints, that he was gonna sort of be elevated to the status of a saint, and obviously that's not at all what he or the reformer stood for, so they took him and they buried him in an unmarked grave in the cemetery, so people couldn't, you know, cause him to be, uh, you know, a saint or a shrine, but that's basically you know, just a brief picture of John Calvin. Well, he wrestles with this idea of election, and he's probably, I'm going to give you the short version of this, so you can ask questions if you'd like to know more, but basically Calvin is known for several really key doctrines of understanding this idea, and a couple of them are, first, that I want to talk about is the idea of unconditional election. And what that means is, is that when it says God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, it's all about God and nothing about us. I mean, if he did it before the foundation of the world, he certainly did it before we're born and we've acted and we've been good little boys or bad little girls or whatever it is. He's it, The idea is that his choosing is completely unconditional upon anything about us. It's all in his good pleasure and his will. And you're going to see that language here in Ephesians. So you have this unconditional election and you have irresistible grace. That's just the term that's been commonly coined to define that. And so what that means is that once God has chosen you, conditioned on nothing about you, conditioned only on his His sovereign will, then his grace to you is irresistible, meaning you don't get to say, gosh, I know I won the sweepstakes, but I don't think I really want the money. In other words, you you cannot resist God's grace. And so you can sense this working out of election as very, very, very God-centric. In other words, God does the choosing, and his grace is irresistible. Does that make sense? A lot of what we just read lends itself to, to that understanding. This really is all about God. God really is at the center of this passage. Well, let's flip and let's go a couple hundred years into the future, a little bit past his life, into the early 1700s. This argument is going on before now, but today we tend to think of the counterbalance of of that idea of unconditional election and irresistible grace as the more Wesleyan ideas. And John Wesley lived in the 1700s. He was... uh, Interesting guy, by the way, he coined the phrase "Agree to disagree." One of his best buddies, a guy named Whitfield, was uh, they, they worked together. He, uh, Whitfield's a great preacher at that time and kind of a revivalist movement. John Wesley had started Methodism. He started these groups, these clubs, as they were called. I think small groups with a lot of accountability. And they got the name Methodists because they had a method. In other words, they did specific things. They held each other accountable. Uh, they prayed. Their Bible study, in other words, is very rigorous. You know, in, in the day, he's rebelling a little bit against the whole, uh, just the lax following of Christ. So he said, "No, we're going to get serious about this. We've got a method." And so they're called Methodists or Methodism. Well, there was kind of a split in there with Whitfield. Whitfield became more Calvinist. He said, "Listen, on this idea of election." And grace I really agree with Calvin and Wesley said no not at all that's that's not a good understanding of what the scripture says and so they kind of split a little bit when Whitfield died he wrote the memorial Wesley wrote his memorial and he coined the coined that phrase that we agreed to disagree and though they split a little bit in life they came back together and so I find that very encouraging because today sometimes the dialogue around this issue gets a little heated I just kind of want to remind you that even Whitfield and Wesley remained, you know, respectful of each other about that. Let me tell you a story about Wesley, this is my favorite story about John Wesley. Uh, Many things you could talk about in his life, but this is a story that gives you a sense of his character. Uh, John Wesley uh, ended up at the early part of his life, he was teaching at Oxford University, and he was making more money than he thought he was going to make as a preacher, and he was doing well. It said his position paid him about 30 pounds a year, which is way more than he needed as a single man, so he lived relatively well. It said he spent his money on playing cards, uh, tobacco, brandy, fine things around his house. But he had an incident that happened to him at Oxford. He's a Christian, but while he's at Oxford, he realizes he just finished buying some furnishings for his his place, and one of the uh, maids came in, to take care of the place. It was really cold and he noticed that she didn't have anything except a very, very thin coat and she was just freezing to death. And it, all of a sudden it just hit him and he said, you know what, I'm going to buy her a coat. So he gets in his pocket and he pulls out the money and he realized, I don't have enough money left to buy her a coat. And so then he realized, you know what, maybe God's not happy that I bought those pictures on the wall instead, and now I don't have enough money to buy this person a coat. What is the matter with me? And so he has this really this epiphany about that, and so what he did was he began to limit his expenses so he would have more money to give to the poor. And if you've heard this before, I'll try to make it quick, but it's just an unbelievable story. He said that his income one year was 30 pounds, but it only cost him 28 pounds to live that year, so he had two pounds to give away. Next year, his income doubles. I mean, he also is very prolific and uh, speaker, uh, mainly a writer. And so the next year, it doubles to 60 pounds, but he still only lived on 28 pounds. In fact, one of his principles was, the more you make, the more you spend. His thought was, I want you to spend what you need, and the more you make, you can give more away. And that's what he did. So he had 28. So that next year, he gave away 32 pounds. In other words, he gave away more than he lived on. Well, it kept on. And uh, third year, income jumped to 90 pounds still only cost him 28 pounds to live, so he gave all the rest of that away. Fourth year, 120 pounds. He gave everything but the 28 away that he needed. So he continued that throughout his life, and one year his income, this is a lot of money in those times, was over 1,400 pounds. And his expenses had jumped all the way up to 30 pounds. So so he he just gave away a tremendous amount of money, and it was just awesome to kind of see that. He said, when I die... If I leave behind even 10 pounds worth of money, then you can say I wasn't a very good Christian. In other words, his attitude was, I'm not waiting. We're just going to deal with it right now and give. And so you get a sense of the character of these guys, and that's important to me because they very much disagree on this doctrine, and people today very much disagree in their stead on the doctrines. But them as individuals, you find two very sincere people who are very sincerely pursuing the truth. Well, let me tell you how Wesley saw it. It's a little bit different. Instead of unconditional election, it's, it's you know God completely choosing. Wesleyans believe in a, a more conditional election. They're still saying God's doing the choosing, but the, the normal doctrine here is that he's doing the choosing based on his foreknowledge. In other words, think Romans 8.29, those whom he foreknew he predestined. So God still chose us in him before the foundation of the world, but instead, it's God using his foreknowledge of what we will do, and that's called a more conditional election. Now, both Calvinists and Wesleyans agree on the depravity of humanity, and I think we'd have to, too, because if you'll just pick up a newspaper, it's pretty hard to argue about that, isn't it? Same today as it was then. But the Calvinists belief fundamentally about the depravity was that you can't choose to do good. It's only God that e- that enables you to be saved. And so you need that irresistible grace. You don't even have the ability to choose God, to respond to God. Wesleyans agreed with that. But instead of God's grace being irresistible, like it's going to hit you like a ton of bricks and Boom, you're, you're in, I mean, and you're converted. Wesley talked about an idea called prevenient grace. And he believed prevenient grace wasn't given to just the people God elected, as the Calvinists did. He thought prevenient grace was given to everybody. What's prevenient grace? Prevenient grace is enough of God's grace to liberate us from bondage to sin enough to be able to respond to the grace he's given us does that make sense in other words everybody gets a chance to respond to God's grace because God has allowed that to happen not because we're so good or we broke free of our bondage on our own but that God lifted us all up enough to have the choice that's the fundamental difference in uh, that In the simple terms, I realize there are a lot of nuances, but fundamentally I think it comes down to the idea of this unconditional election and irresistible grace versus, no, it's a conditional election. You have a part to play in this, and God is going to give you enough grace, provenient grace, so that you are able to make this response to God, that you have a part to play. Well, you can see Calvinists think, well, that's just heresy. That says that you're doing something in your own salvation, which sounds a lot like works, right? Wesleyans, on the other hand, say, no, that's not what we mean at all. It is still God doing everything to save you, but he has decided to allow us to have the option to respond or not. And sure enough, my view, you read the scripture, and you do see both kinds of language in the scripture. So my goal here is not to convince you to believe one or the other of these doctrines because, frankly, uh, people haven't come to terms on this in 500 years, and I doubt we're going to do it in an hour this evening. What I do want to do is have at least an understanding of the issue that people are trying to cope with. When you read things like, for he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, predestined us to be adopted into his family, you see this very God-centric view of him rescuing us and so you're getting people wrestling with the idea that no we're not saved by works but it certainly looks like that our will enters into this in some way and so that's kind of the basic uh, difference there but here's what I want to come together because I one of the things I told you we talk about is I don't think you must be a Calvinist or must be a Wesleyan to be a Christian but I do think you must believe this. You must believe that God chose us. We don't choose him. And what I mean by that is contrary to a more libertarian idea of free will. It's a very popular idea in our culture. It's a very cultural idea. Is that fundamentally, you, it's all about me. And I wake up in the morning and I decide... Am I going to go to Chick-fil-A for breakfast today or am I going to go here and it's completely up to me and it's at my free, complete and total free will to do whatever I want to do. Our society is kind of based on that. We even have the Bill of Rights that says what I'm allowed to choose and do and we keep inventing new rights every day. I don't even know how many rights I have anymore. We've invented so many but this idea of I'm completely free to choose what I want. Neither Calvinists nor Wesleyans, and I'm going to argue, nor the scriptures teach the idea that you are a completely free moral agent who is capable of coming up out of sin and looking and deciding, you know, I just decided today, I pick you, God. You know, yesterday I picked me and I was all about that, but you know what, I decided I picked you. That's not really a biblical idea. It's a very cultural idea. So one thing I think that, no matter what, we must believe is that we don't choose God. God chose us, as this passage says. The other idea is has to do with the, the reason that God chooses us. Sometimes it's a very cultural idea and even a certain Christian idea that there's something about us that makes us choosable to God. And what I'm talking about there is, for example, is universalism. Universalism is kind of the idea that at the end of the day, God looks at us and he says, you know, you've just been a real rascal. You know, you've just done some naughty things in your life, but I know you've got a good heart. You know, that deep down, you're really an okay person. And I tell you what, I'm not mad at you right now. So I'll t- come on. You just everybody come in, right? Call it the all dogs go to heaven theology. In other words, at the end of the day, if you ever saw that movie, I saw that movie 500 times with my children when they were little. And at the end of the day, even the mean old dog, ah, come on, you can go to heaven. You're really good deep down. Okay, that's not a Christian idea is that you're really good deep down. Yeah, no, actually you're not really good deep down. Calvinists and Wesleyan both say, you know what, deep down, guess what? We're prone to sin. You know, we're, we're in rebellion to God. So the grace that you see in universalism, that idea or the secular idea that, well, if there's a heaven, everybody's going to have to get in because come on, you know, who's really there to say what's right and wrong? That kind of an idea is what I call a very ordinary kind of grace. It's kind of grace you and I might do. It's like, oh, okay, it's probably not fair to give. but We don't want to leave anybody out. Come in. That's not very amazing grace. I'll show you amazing grace. This is amazing grace. When we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. That means those people who were in rebellion against him, against God. He says... God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's amazing grace. The idea that there's something in me that God so loves that I'm just such a lovable little rascal that he's just going to turn his blind eye to all my sins and so forth. That's not very amazing grace. You know what that sounds like to me? Sounds like really poor parenting. I mean, everybody have kids like that? People that parent their kids that way? Oh, I'm not going to correct you. I Really, I love you. Someone I'm going to let you do whatever you want to do. Little brats, aren't they? Yeah, a bunch of little Calvinistic sinners running around there. You know, based, but my point is, that's kind of ordinary grace. Extraordinary grace is what Romans 5 is talking about, is that despite the fact that we are mired in sin, God... Acts upon us. Doesn't matter whether you're Wesleyan or Calvinist, that's something that you definitely agree, that we definitely believe in. The other thing that I think really unites us is the other part of this passage. Let me go there, back to our passage. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. What did He choose us for? What's the purpose of our election, of God's choosing us? This is something about which there is no dispute whatsoever. And because it's very clear, he chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, this is not something we like to talk about very much because it's a little daunting. But this is the purpose of election. He chose us so that we would be holy and blameless. This idea of being holy doesn't mean being perfect. I mean, that's one, one thing that really trips us up. We think, oh, I'm supposed to be holy. And so you get all these images come to your mind. You know, who comes to your mind? Oh, Billy Graham, he's a pretty holy guy. Mother Teresa, whoa, seriously holy lady, right? And you start thinking about all these people that even though you know they're not perfect, you just know that they are a whole lot closer than I am, right? And so we begin to see holiness as some kind of measuring up. But the idea of holiness doesn't have anything to do with measuring up. Holiness means being set apart. It means being uncommon. It's just not common. It's different. It's set apart because it's got a purpose for it. That's what being holy means to us, is being set apart and following Christ and being about his purpose, no longer being about common purposes. Being blameless means not being spotted by the world because Christ washes us clean and so now we look blameless. This is something God is doing in us for himself, this idea of being holy and blameless. These adjectives, by the way, are the same adjectives that are used in the Old Testament to talk about sacrificial animals, is they needed to be set apart from the flock and they needed to be blameless, meaning that they needed to be, they weren't lame or limping or poor animals or that kind of thing. They were, they, were, they were good animals. They were spotless and they were set apart from the herd. Well, that came to mean a moral and ethical consideration, The Jews were holy people, not because they were all perfect, but because they'd been set apart out of the herd for something special. That's the picture for you and me. In other words, we have been chosen because God's got something special for us, not because there's something special about us. Does that make sense? You and I are chosen to do something special, not because we are something special. That make sense? that's the purpose that along with the idea of adoption which is also powerful he predestined us in other words he decided he foreordained he predestined that we would be adopted into his family that's a powerful idea because one of the key ideas there is in the old testament all that adoption language you know what it talks about in the old testament it's talking about israel the jews are adopted sons, children of God. In other words, I've made you special, I've pulled you out, and I've decided to have an intimate relationship with you. You're going to be part of my family. That's talk about Israel. Now you see that talk about the church. You have been given this special status of being brought into the family of God. The big implication... This is what I really want you to think about what this passage is saying. When you read election language like this, instead of saying, gosh, do I need to be a Calvinist or am I a Wesleyan? I think I was a Calvinist yesterday, but I think, I don't know. What I want you to think about is the purpose of your election, the purpose of your being chosen, was that God has something special for you, and he's going to make something special out of you. You're going to join his family and become something special. And here's the bottom line message of God's election and it doesn't matter if you're Calvinist, you're Wesleyan, is God's election does not permit us to remain as we are. We have to be set, we are set apart because of his choosing of us. Whether you think we respond to his grace or his grace is irresistible to us and we had no will in that, either way, we've been set apart for this purpose and we've been made special by something that God has done. That's kind of the idea around predestination. I would want to focus less on exactly how did I get predestined and focus more on what we agree on is exactly why did I get chosen and what are his purposes for me. Let me pause. What questions do we have?
1: Okay, it says, he chose us. Who is us?
0: Good question. He chose us. You have to assume that it's the recipients of Paul's letter and Paul is writing to the Christians who lived in the area of Ephesus. It isn't necessarily to one church, you know, like First Baptist Church of Ephesus. You know, in those days it was written to all the believers in this whole area and they would take it and they would go Xerox the letter, Uh, they'd scan it in and then they'd email it to each other. In other words, they've circulated the letter around and everybody read it. So one has to assume he's talking to the believers in that area of Ephesus so it's written to the Christians would be a good way of saying that I guess
1: okay in relation to pre- being predestined did God predestine everyone or are there some who are not predestined
0: well if I understand the question right let me jump to the Calvinist side for a second and uh, maybe missing the point of this question but the standard teaching of Calvinism is that God has chosen, predestined, a certain group of people based on his good pleasure and his will. And those people are elect, meaning they're going to persevere, they're going to be adopted as sons, they're going to end up in heaven. That's a bad way to say it, but that's the basic idea. And others he has chosen not chosen. Okay, The idea that goes a little farther, and there's some people who think this is called, I guess it's uh, kind of commonly called double predestination, is not, not only did he choose the ones that are going to be saved, he chose the rest of them and said, oh, and by the way, I picked you to go to hell. That's not really mainline doctrine, but that's kind of the effect. In other words, you're elect or you're not elect, and then you're going to suffer the consequence of your sin and rebellion. So if I understood that right, those people who are elect are the ones that God said, I've picked you.
1: Is there a, you said that's the Calvinist side. Is there a Wesleyan side of that?
0: Yes, the uh, Wesleyan side, and then there's several flavors of this too. One, the, the, probably the main idea there on conditional election is, I have picked those of you whom I foreknew would respond to grace. Probably the best way I can say that. There's also an idea that God has, in some sense, elected everyone, but not everyone will respond to that election. That's a little more problematic. But in general, the idea with Wesleyanism is broader. It's not, I just picked you guys. I actually am willing that all would be saved, but I know, I foreknow who will respond to that grace. So you can. There's, a li- there's definitely a difference there. I may not be explaining that very well, but hopefully enough for you to see the difference.
1: Okay, where did Martin Luther stand in regard to Calvin and Wesley? Uh,
0: Where did Martin Luther stand in regard? That's a good question. Martin Luther actually was frying different fish, if you want to think about it that way. And so I'm not sure that I know enough about Lutheranism to give you a good answer to exactly what did his followers, where did they come down? For example, Methodists or Calvinists. Methodists, and there were Wesleyan Methodists, or really Arminian is what they called them, but you get the idea. You had Methodists on both sides of this. I don't know that I know enough about the Lutheran tradition to know that. It's a good question.
1: Okay. The Bible talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. How does that fit with the idea of predestination?
0: The idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart, the, the interesting thing about, well, first of all, let me just give you the same thing. God can harden a heart if God wants to harden a heart. In other words, God is sovereign, and God can do what God wants to do. The interesting thing about that story, if you go back and read the Exodus story, is sometimes in that story it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and sometimes in that story it talks about Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, Pharaoh decided I'm going to be a real jerk. Okay. I would characterize, and there's many that wouldn't agree, but here's how I would suggest you look at this. This idea of understanding God's sovereignty is a sincere effort to rationalize that, to understand that the Scripture seems to speak as though I have some play, I have some will in this, but clearly God is sovereign and he is in control. And you see those two ideas are kind of in tension. And the way I tend to simplistically understand Calvinism and Wesleyanism is wrestling with those two ideas and trying to reconcile that, but coming at it in a little different way. So, yes, God can uh, harden Pharaoh's heart, did harden Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And you think, wow, which is it? Yeah, apparently, yes. It does not shock me that, that we wrestle with this personally, because I think when you're dealing with something as complex as God and his nature and how he is interacting with humanity, whom he has given some sense of free will, I mean, everybody understands will in some sense, how then he can be sovereign with that is a very complicated idea to this finite mind. And it does not surprise me that we can't just pop out a nice little simplistic answer. So I think wrestling with this is good, and that's why I tend to focus on the idea of, well, what do we agree on, and what's probably more important, and that is the purpose of our election. What then should we be about? Because frankly, as Calvinists, Wesleyans, and this church's uh, tradition is Wesleyan, but you probably don't know that. If you're Calvinist, you're completely welcome here, because you know what? we If we're chosen, we're chosen, all of us, to be holy and blameless in His sight, to be adopted as His children, and to, as Ephesians is going to say later, go do all those good works that He's prepared beforehand for us to do. So we can go get about that together and we won't have to argue about it. Well, let me get to the other two pieces of this. That's the God chose us. Show you the next verse. By the way, if you're not reading your Bible regularly, all I'm going to ask you is read one sentence a day. It's long. But read this sentence every day. It will so inspire you. Just one sentence. I mean, come on. That's all I'm asking you. Read this sentence every day. We begin with God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us to be adopted as sons. Now let's move to Jesus, the Messiah. In him, that's again a reference to Jesus. In Jesus we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And then at the very end, I'm not going to read it all to you for the praise of his glory. That's the end of that little section. Christ, God chose us, Christ redeems us. This is another reason that God should be blessed. Blessed because he chose us and predestined us to be adopted as sons and because Christ redeems us. This word for redemption, you probably know, you've heard so many sermons on this, but fundamentally the Greek word for redemption carries with it the idea of paying a ransom. and uh, and which implies somebody's in trouble. Somebody got kidnapped or somebody's enslaved or someone needs to be ransomed. They are not free to act as they want to act. So there's the strong implication in redemption of this idea that I'm somehow not a free agent. I am in captivity of some kind and it's going to take something to ransom me or buy me out. And what this says is, we have been ransomed or redeemed what? With his blood. The violent act of the cross was the means to ransom us from captivity. So the idea is, in this very thing, it talks about our condition and God's condition. Our condition is helpless, and Christ is doing the action. This word, by the way, is used in the Old Testament. Uh, very literally, for example, in Exodus and Leviticus to talk about freeing a slave. You would go buy out a slave. You would go purchase a slave and set them free. I mean, so you get this idea of someone who is a captive. They are not free. They are enslaved, and this ransom must be paid to take them out of that condition. That's what Christ did for us. He redeemed us. Here's the point I want to make to you about that. With election, the point I really wanted to drive home was you are are now special because God made you special, because he has this purpose for you to be holy. He has adopted you as children in his family. And that in redemption is that you were captive and through no effort of your own, you have been set free, redeemed through the blood of Christ. And here's my point I want to get you there. On election is that the one thing election means is we are no longer able to stay the way we were. We have to be holy. We are set apart. Here, I want you to realize that self-help Christianity will always fail. Self-help Christianity has to fail. Because what the scripture says is you were so captive that if you could have done anything to be freed from sin on your own, you certainly would have. Nobody wants to be a slave to sin. But you were completely unable, and it took a ransom of his blood to free you. So now, as Christians, it's absolutely insulting to God to go act like we're going to get perfected on our own. Do you see how absolutely out of sync that is? In other words, the Scripture, I think, is really clear to us that we will be perfected in Christ we will be transformed into the image of God's son you know Romans 8:29 those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus another way of saying set apart and shaped into a different creature in order for that to happen it is not going to happen through our efforts and so sometimes as Christians, we kind of fall back into this hole, and both Calvin and Wesley were just roll over in their graves when we do this, right? Like we fall back into kind of a workspace. Like, I think I'm going to try harder, and I think I can beat this thing. I'm going to grit my teeth, and I'm just going to be a good Christian. That will always fail. That's what it's talking about redemption. We couldn't do it then. We can't do it now. We're relying on God for that transformation to take place. Notice how God-centered everything is here. You notice how you and I are the recipient of everything. We are not the actors in this drama. That's a key idea, whether Wesleyan or Calvinist. It doesn't make any difference. We both agree on that. Well, let's look at the third uh, part of this. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit. Third section says God chose us. We're no longer free to remain as we were because we're special now. Christ redeemed us. We don't have the power to perfect ourselves. Self-help Christianity can never work. What does the Spirit do? It says, and you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. What was the word of truth? The good news of your salvation. And having believed, when you believed, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. He's a down payment. That's what that word literally means. He's a deposit. He's a down payment guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of God's position, until we're united with God. That's your down payment, is you've been marked with a seal of the Holy Spirit. Let me show you a really vivid image of this. This is some archaeology from Israel. This is probably about 800 B.C. or so. You see a lot of this around. But that jar on the right are what they would use for storage jars. So they use it for grain or for wine or for olive oil or whatever. And you'd need to know whose it was. Well, in the royal storehouses, they would put a stamp on it. While the clay was still soft, they'd stamp it. It's called a seal. It's the exact word that we just saw. And that stamp on the left is one of those seals. And it's got the abbreviation in Hebrew, LMLK. And in Hebrew, MLK, Melech means king, and the L on front means for the king or to the king. But basically, this belongs to the king. Do not mess with my stuff. Okay, That's a that's kind of a liberal translation, but that's what it basically says. Do not mess with my stuff. This is mine. It's belonging to the king. And on the little, uh, you'll see the seal on that, just on the handles of that. And it says, Lamelech, belonging to the king. That's the image that I'd like you to have in your mind about this. Because that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. It's sort of like, think about God stamping a seal on you. In the book of Revelation, you're going to see Satan stamp a seal on his people, aren't you? Remember that? A little barcode on the forehead? Well, I don't know if it's a barcode, but I think it's probably a barcode. But, and then you also see a reference in Revelation, God stops everything. It's this great little passage in Revelation where all this chaos is going on, Bad stuff's happening. You're in the middle of what we call the tribulation. It's like really ugly. And God says, just a minute. Everything stops and sends the angels out to seal his people. Put a mark on them. And here's what the mark says. This is what Revelation says. This is what Terry says. The mark says, you belong to the king, the king of kings. I mean, that's really, this is just a vivid image. God seals us in some way and says, you belong to me. Why? Because he chose us in Christ before the beginning of the world. And while we were captives, he ransomed us by Christ's blood. And the Holy Spirit is his stamp saying, that belongs to me. It's special. Is that a beautiful picture or what? That's a beautiful passage. Questions?
1: have several of the same question, different words. Um, under the Calvinist perspective, if God predestines Christians, then why are we uh, doing evangelism, missionary endeavors, teaching, preaching, etc.?
0: Good question. Why do we do evangelism if—why do Calvinists do evangelism? That's probably the question for Wesleyan— You basically understand, I'm really simplifying this, but for a Wesleyan, you're basically saying the gospel, when you heard, remember what we just read, the gospel of truth, the good news of your salvation, having believed. Here's what a Wesleyan understands that to mean. It means you responded to God's grace. You didn't pick God. He did everything. But you responded. And when you respond, he gave you enough grace to be able to respond. And when you did, he said, you're mine. I'll seal you. So you can understand, then, why we need to go tell people. We, we need to find out who will respond to this grace. For Calvinists, a, a simplistic and erroneous assumption is, well, you're in, you're not, i got nothing to do with it, I'll just sit here on the couch and God will just go pick who he wants to pick. That's not a good understanding of how Calvinists look at this. Calvinists understand that the means God has chosen, the, the method that God wants to use, great commission, go into all the world teaching everybody to be disciples. Why does Jesus say that? Well, it's got to make sense because he kind of understood the Ephesians part too, right? So how do you make sense? Well, Calvinists understand that. I think very sensibly so saying God has decreed that this is the way that he will identify his elect. Does that make sense? So that's why you would go do it in one case because people need to hear to respond in another case because God has chosen this method to to identify the elect.
1: Um, Are you predestined to have a Duck Dynasty beard like your son?
0: I am predestined to have a gray beard if I have one at all. That's a really good question. Well, let me sum this up a little bit. I hope that the talk about predestination has been useful. It's been, you can read this in tons more detail, but what I want to do is say, do you have a fair understanding of, I see people wrestling with an issue and one coming at it this way with will, playing into God's sovereignty, another tackling that same problem with a perhaps more God-centric kind of a view of it. You see the scriptures, and, but the one thing we agree is God chose us, we don't choose him. And we agree on the purpose of that, and that is to be holy and blameless. And you know what? The really good news about that is he chose us. He chose us. I'd urge you to put the emphasis in that passage a little differently, and it changes your theology. Instead of he chose us, oh, man, am I going to have a Calvinistic view of that or am I going to have a Wesleyan view of that? How about reading it this way? He chose us. Why? Why? Well, we're going to be holy and blameless, and we're adopted into his family. Oh, my goodness. While I was still a sinner, he decided to make me special? Man, if that doesn't get your blood going in the morning, nothing's going to get your blood going. God chose us. Christ redeemed us. He said, you are so important. I'm going to make you special, and you have no power to do this on your own. I'm willing to go through the violence of the cross to redeem you, to ransom you, and then God says, and having believed, I'm going to put a stamp on you that says you belong to the king. Now, if you will read that sentence in the morning and start your day that way, my, my, I'm serious about this. This is my challenge to you. You just read this 3 through 14. You read that sentence every morning, and you think, he chose me. He redeemed me. I have a seal that says I belong to the king. Who in the world can destroy your self-image that day? Seriously, I want you just to be revved up about that. I want you to be on fire for the fact to know what God did for me. All right? That's the message of this. So read this every day this week. It's just one sentence. It won't take any time at all. And go out supercharged to know who you are because if you're like me you get up in the morning you start thinking about all the problems of the day and before you know it you can kinda start feeling a little down about oh, I didn't do a good job there oh man that reports late oh my boss is gonna kill me oh my wife is gonna kill me I should have done that yesterday you know the king of the universe says you are special and you belong to him that's a good way to start your day that's your challenge next time we're gonna go into chapter 2 and we're gonna talk about another issue in those days Jews and Christians and how do we work together was an interesting issue, and I think you'll find that Paul's take on that is pretty unique. But here's how it applies today. Should Christians support Israel? I think Paul answers that in chapter 2. But that's what we'll talk about next time. Thank you, guys.